a very warm welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast with your host, Paul Lowe. Paul offers wisdom, insights and tips for living a healthy, meaningful, purposeful life. On the back of overcoming extreme adversity, Paul has a proven track record of achieving life-enhancing results. He offers empowering advice and guidance to help people develop a mindset for success so that they can live with more happiness and prosperity. Through his Mastering the Game of Life podcast and books, Paul also helps people to get their own inspirational messages and powerful stories out into the world, as well as being involved in supporting many charitable organisations in their development, fundraising and projects. Hello listeners and welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode today. I'm joined by a gentleman from California in the United States of America. His name, Eric Ressler, and Eric is going to be talking to us in our theme around the game's changing. How will you master it? Eric, a very warm welcome to you, sir. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, interesting title. You know, it's one that's running through a few of our guests in this more um, more recent phase, Eric. The game's changing. How will you master it? So maybe a good starting point is for you to give us a brief intro into who you are, what you do. And uh, yeah, let's we can get the show on the road then. Yeah, that sounds good. So I'm Eric Ressler and I'm the founder and creative director of Cosmic. And Cosmic is a social impact creative agency. So we work with nonprofits, social enterprises, foundations, and generally organizations who are working to create positive change for the world. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about the concept of how is culture changing, especially from the context of how digital and the internet and technology is shaping and changing culture and connecting us more globally. Okay, so that lends straight away, Eric, to me of somebody of um, a certain age, that, you know, and I'm I'm deliberately paying devil's advocate here with this uh, older people don't like technology card. So is that something that you come across much? You know, I feel like it's very case dependent. Um, you know, we see some clients who are, uh, you know, a little bit older who've really adopted and embraced technology. And then on the flip side, there's some young people who are kind of, um, you know, not quite as into it in the same way. So I think it really just depends. I think certainly that's a generalization is that um, folks of a certain age demographic might feel like technology is moving more quickly than they can keep up with. And I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, I feel that way sometimes. I'm 34. I grew up um, and kind of with the birth of the internet from an early age. And so I, I'm not a digital native, um, like people even just 10 years younger than me are. Um, but I've always been very interested in technology and I've always used it for work and for play and for entertainment. And even I feel out of the loop on some of the new things that are happening. And I think it's just quite overwhelming for a lot of people, regardless of their age range. Certainly digital natives and younger people are a little bit more attuned and have a little bit more of an intuitive sense of how technology fits into their lives and shapes their lives and might be able to pick things up a little bit more quickly. But it is quite overwhelming, I think, for all of us in certain ways. But the reason I deliberately played that, dare I say, that age card, that stereotype card, Eric, if I'm honest about it, to my immortal shame, how dare I stereotype as the host of a podcast show? But 
You know, this um, this whole thing around, you know, the younger generation do and the older generation don't stereotype, but it brings in a bigger point, listeners, doesn't it? And you've heard me say this so many times before that it's not whether we can or whether we can't, it's whether we believe we can. And so, you know, I would imagine for for people that have really got their finger on the pulse with technology, it changes so rapidly in today's ever-evolving society that even they struggle to cope with it. Maybe they don't. I don't know. Um, it's a question we'll put to Eric because, he, you know, I think one thing is safe, it's safe to say. He knows far more about technology than I do, but I do embrace it because I think, you know, the world progresses and it's... If we don't move our minds and our thoughts and our beliefs around that, it's going to leave us behind. What's your thoughts, Eric? I agree. I mean, I think something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, and and me personally especially, is how technology should fit into society and how it can be used as a force for good and how we can make sure that it's not being used um, in ways that are not really skillful in terms of moving society forward. I think we have some catching up to do um, in the sense that, you know, we largely interact with one another, um, even friends and family these days through digital channels and through social media. And what's kind of happened, I think, and it's not something that I think anyone really totally saw coming is that these social channels really shape our experience and shape our reality and create information bubbles that we're all in, whether or not we want to be in them. And so I think we need to, as a culture, spend a lot more time thinking about how we can make sure that we all have a shared view of reality as much as we possibly can, and that these information bubbles are not leading us into, you know, paths of unnecessary polarization or divisiveness or siloing information channels. And I think this kind of comes together with a little bit of a path of a lack of trust in experts and institutions, which is also quite dangerous. Um, And, you know, we've seen that play out in the last couple of years in a few different ways here in America, um, you know, over in Europe as well, and across the globe. And so I think we really feel like technology has a place to really move things forward and connect us globally and mobilize a coalition of supporters and advocates and people who are trying to make a positive change for the world. And that's largely what we spend our time doing at Cosmic and what I spend a lot of my time doing professionally. But then personally, I I also do worry about, um, is it moving so fast that there's more unintended consequences than there are benefits of specifically the internet and these social channels? Has it detracted Eric, generally, has it detracted from that old-fashioned power? Let's get around the campfire, you know, let's get the family together, Mm. let's get around a barbecue, let's talk. Perish the thought that people talk these days, other than sending text messages and, you know, that emails and and all that kind, even family, even so-called close family, you know, we've lost those, have we lost, you know, the, the fabric of society, Eric, to what degree has technology, I don't, I'm, looking for, I'm looking for the right word here, I wouldn't say eradicated it because that's too strong, but it, I think it's certainly impinged upon it. And in my humble opinion, if I can be allowed to offer one, negatively. I would personally agree with that. Um, I've, I've, outside of my professional world, basically 
completely detached from social media as a conscious choice. And, and, you know, I'm not here to judge people who haven't done that. Everyone needs to find what works for them. But, um, you know, I really found that it was starting to detract from my own personal um, happiness, frankly. And um, it was really getting to a point where it felt kind of like an addiction. I mean, these, these social channels and these social platforms are literally constructed to be addictive and to um, find ways to bring you back in and to find ways to send you content that's going to engage you. I mean, that's literally their business model and their ad revenue model. And so it's been an interesting experiment. It's been a couple of years since I've been on social media. I was on a lot of the main platforms like most people were. Um, my generation and my friends are typically on Instagram. And um, what I've found that's interesting about that is because everyone just assumes you're on social channels, when I did meet up with friends, they would kind of emit stories from me or they would expect me to know things about them that I, I should know about them because they posted stories about their lives on social media. And so it was this really interesting thing where people assume you know what they're up to if you, even if you haven't had a chance to interact with them because they assume that you're following them on their social channels. And so that's an interesting kind of thing that's happened and that I've personally experienced. And I will admit that at times I do feel disconnected from my friends um, for that reason, but overall it's still something that I believe is, is a better choice and it allows a little bit of space for me to do things outside of, um, you know, interacting with social media. And I'm also biased because I spend a lot of my time in my professional life working on digital channels and looking at screens. And so I need to be especially careful about carving out some time to not do that. And to, you know, I personally love to get out, do things outdoors, hike, bike, surf, do stuff outside. And, you know, having space to do that is really important for my personal fulfillment. Um, and so, yeah, it's been quite interesting to just see, uh, I have other friends who've cut back or, or chosen different social channels, um, but mostly everyone I know still has some kind of social media presence or, um, you know, some kind of social media identity that they're constantly maintaining and checking. And, and I think there is some benefit to being able to connect with people, uh, especially across the globe and see what friends are up to that you might not be able to see otherwise, especially right now um, in light of the pandemic and the fact that a lot of us are not able to travel or see friends in the same ways that we were able to before. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite a fascinating thing to see how it's just rapidly shaped our society and culture and how we interact with one another. Just listening to Eric speak there, listeners, I was just thinking, I'm looking at the question that I've got written down here. And not Sorry, not the question, the title. The game's changing. How will you master it? I think, Eric, just to play, uh, just to flirt and dance with this a bit more, how will you master it? Open brackets without technology, close brackets. Is it conceivable that we can master or work towards mastering the game of life without technology? I think that really depends on your values and your goals and what your version of mastering the game of life looks like. Um, I think there are people who are certainly very fulfilled and happy without technology. I think um, we've always in culture had one form of technology or another going all the way back to just utilizing basic tools, right? You can consider that technology to agriculture, to the industrial revolution. So in certain ways, we're just seeing we're really moving into a new era that um, you know we refer to as the information era where information is free and technology empowers us to share information very rapidly and ubiquitously um, for the most part. Certainly there are populations that are not 
um, connected and are underserved from a technology standpoint, um, which has an impact. I think it's really hard today to, um, to build a career without using technology. So much happens digitally, even being a small business owner and, you know, being a brick and mortar store is something and, and, and retail is something that is moving online. And so we're seeing technology and, and the internet really transform culture completely. So I think professionally technology and the internet are almost ubiquitous and, and really difficult to ignore or to not be skilled in, in order to be, um, you know, a modern worker and a modern member of professional society. I'm more interested in, from a personal perspective, outside of work, outside of your career, can you master life in that regard without technology? I think you totally can. Um, and I think it's about using technology in a skillful way and in an intentional way instead of getting sucked in, which is quite easy to do. And we all do it. I do it myself literally every day still, even though I'm pretty intentional about trying not to do it um, because it's just so pervasive in our society. You know, when you go on a road trip today, the first thing you do is pull up Google maps and map it out, right? You don't have an old map in your car anymore. Maybe some people still do. Um, I don't know anyone who does that anymore. And so I think it really comes back to defining what are your values and what do you value in life and then reverse engineering a way to get there. And if technology can get you there more quickly in, a, in an effective way, then that's great. But if it's getting in the way of those values, which I think is more common, then I think it's probably a good thing for everyone to take a, a good look at how they're leveraging technology or making sure that it's not um, you know, becoming a barrier for them to reach their kind of desired future state around how they want to live their lives. Mm. You've made reference, Eric, consistently um, to the to the personal and the professional side of your life. Let's have that dual approach in this question. So what does mastering the game of life mean to you? Yeah, um, you know, I think it's something that I, I'm still figuring out for myself. I mentioned before, I'm, I'm 34. I, I still have a lot of life in front of me, um, hopefully. And I really look at it as a learning experience. Um, there's certain things that I've learned about um, trying to live a deliberate or intentional life that helps me personally, um, and especially kind of trying to strike a balance between my professional life and my personal life. Um, as an example, uh, the agency I run at Cosmic, we have a four-day work week, um, and we we take every Friday off, and we work hard those four days, but that gives us a three-day break every week to kind of recharge. And because we're doing creative work and strategic work, that recharge is so important to ensure that we don't burn out and to ensure that we don't um, you know, just get caught up in the daily grind and end up just kind of churning out work instead of doing what's actually best. And having that space is really important. So that's just an example of trying to craft um, a life and a livelihood and a lifestyle that's conducive to um, happiness, that's conducive to having space, that's conducive to being able to be really intentional and present and experience life as it unfolds in the most meaningful way possible. Superb. What do you think it'll look like in 10 years time, Eric, this world, a world that, you know, we've already made reference around the rapidly, the exponential rapidly way that technology is evolving. What will it look like in the next decade, do you think? I think the next decade is going to be wild. Um, I think that there's so much 
kind of coming to a head right now. Um, I think I, I feel it, especially being in America right now, um, not to get into politics too much, but there's just so much change happening. There's a lot of polarization in our country, especially that's, you know, it's difficult to, um, to navigate, frankly. And on top of that, um, you know, we are seeing, I'm in California and we're, we're experiencing just epic wildfires this season. Um, they actually impacted my community pretty deeply here in Santa Cruz, California. Yesterday, it literally looked like there was a mushroom cloud over the skies. It never got much brighter than twilight the entire day. And so I think the realities of climate change are becoming ever more apparent. And um, it's this kind of looming existential crisis that's becoming less existential by the day. So I'm really optimistic that the next generation is is very aware and motivated um, and maybe at times demoralized by this global issue that really there's an opportunity for it to be a completely unifying fight against basically the survival of our species on this earth um, that I think should be and has an opportunity to be such an awesome force for unifying us against, you know, a common cause. And so I'm really hopeful in looking at the next generation and the way that they're organizing and mobilizing and coming together and problem solving and getting innovative. And I have this thought and this belief that if we can just get through the next 10 years and make some progress there, then the future of humanity is really bright. I think we're in this transitional phase where it's a little bit precarious um, with the state of basically the last generation and some bad decisions, frankly, that have been made around planning for um, issues around climate and other just issues around inequity and structural issues around society and things that have been set up in a way that are not conducive to creating um, equal opportunities for everyone. And the next generation really seems to be um, acutely attuned to those issues and motivated and activated to, to address them and to make a positive change. And so the next 10 years, it's going to be really interesting. Um, that's for sure. I hope that 10 years from now, we're in a place that feels like we're on a path towards real progress. Listening to Eric's response there, listeners, I think one thing, irrespective, as I've said this before, irrespective of our particular thoughts, beliefs, likes, dislikes about technology, as I say, it's here to stay and it's escalating at an exponential rate. So whether we like it or not is kind of, it's by the by. So when we look at that, this title question of the game's changing, how will you master it? I think it makes, makes really good sense to, to start to think about these social impact organizations that, that Eric's company, Cosmic, you know, that they represent because, you know, all these things that are going off in our world, you know, climate change is just, well, it's just one of them. It's, it's a massive one at the risk of stating the obvious. So, Eric, why should social impact organizations, why should they invest in the digital strategy and platforms? Why? Well, I think the, the, the direct answer really is that that's where conversations happen in 2020. Um, and that's where more and more conversations are going to happen in 2021 and in the future. And so this is a case, I think, where it would be a bad strategy to just opt out or underinvest in digital whether you're a nonprofit or a market-based 
um, social enterprise where you, you sell a product, but you have a, a broader purpose or mission beyond just profit, um, or really any modern organization to undervalue and to underinvest in these digital channels and a digital culture is, is really, um, it's going to hold you back. It's already holding you back, even if it doesn't feel like it at this point. And I think it's really clear that often the digital side of things is considered to be kind of a side thing or an afterthought, or it might sometimes be approached in an ad hoc fashion. I would say, especially um, amongst social impact organizations and especially amongst nonprofits, um, not to, not to judge. I think they're under a lot of pressure and they're generally pretty under-resourced, which is another problem. But what we've seen is that if organizations can even take the first step and start to develop a strategy for leveraging digital as a platform and as a core element to their business and shape a culture around that, there's a lot of opportunity there and it can really help to kind of move everything with the organization forward. I think we think a lot about as a social impact organization or, or basically if you're trying to make change in the world, it really starts with an idea around a better version of the future and what that looks like and just planting a seed. And so, so much of the work is just telling that story and getting it out there and attracting other people who share that vision and the values that you have and that version of the future and want to help and giving them the opportunity to engage and to join the conversation. And then ultimately to, to build a coalition and to mobilize and activate that coalition to actually take action to do things like volunteer and donate, of course, uh, especially in the case of nonprofits, but also to organize and to spread ideas and to influence people in positions of power who have the ability to change and shape culture through laws or through commerce or other channels. And so I think that digital needs to be thought of as a core element of these organizations' culture and a core strategy for how they can actually move their mission forward and realize the change that they're trying to create in the world. Can I just share with you listeners, I absolutely 100% agree with every word of that. And the reason I do is in a former life, I've formed charities, I've formed community groups, I've formed social enterprises whilst I was in the UK. And I think it's fair to say that not everyone, but most of those were formed from a real heart-centered let's change the world, but there was no hard, no strategic branding thought concept behind it. It was just pure, good old fashioned, let's think from the heart, which is massive. I mean, it's absolutely massive. And those charities, community groups, social enterprises, you know, they, they, they made differences. There's no, there's no two ways about it. You know, the old cliche is if you change one life, well, I can say that collectively they changed a, a lot more than one life. But, and this is certainly from a leadership perspective, listeners, a big, big learning point from me that what I feel, I'm going to ask Eric the question in a moment, but what Eric's talking about here is branding, create a sustainable brand. Am I on the right lines here, Eric? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we we really look at this concept of what does it mean to be a brand? And oftentimes uh, these charities or these nonprofits especially don't really think of themselves as a brand or they don't understand what it means to build a brand and, and how it must be um, strategically formed and then nurtured and maintained over time. 
Um, frankly, largely because they just don't come from that background or that expertise. They might be, um, you know, more public policy folks or oftentimes researchers or scientists, and they are um, usually quite intelligent and very deep category experts in their space around the issue that they're um, working to solve. And I think what that means is that oftentimes there's not really anyone on the team in charge of the brand or in charge of communications. And so it gets um, undervalued and it gets basically piecemealed and ad hoc. It's usually someone's second or third job within the organization. And so it just doesn't get the right amount of attention. And I think that's okay as long as these organizations learn and understand the value of a brand and can bring on partners like us or consultants or eventually build out an internal team that can really take ownership of that part. And I think if we can spread the word about the effectiveness of brand building and digital within these organizations, the value is self-evident fairly quickly. What's interesting to me is that in the political space, uh, especially talking about political campaigns, this is fairly well adopted and pervasive at this point. Online fundraising, online organizing, brand building, utilizing digital as a core strategy is essentially second nature for most of those organizations and political candidates at this point. Whereas in the kind of cause-based world, um, it's not quite as pervasive yet. And so I think it's inevitable that it's catching up. We're seeing more and more investment in digital uh, among the nonprofit space. I do believe that the social enterprise world is a little bit more attuned to this out of the box because they have to think more like a traditional business, especially if they're a B2C brand, for example. Um, but I do think that there's still a large portion of these organizations that undervalue and underinvest or just don't understand the power and the potential of digital and it's holding them back without them realizing that it's doing so. Interesting dilemma, Eric, just picking up on that thread of, you know, good-hearted people, massively good-hearted people forming good causes for the right reasons. One of the comments that I had previously consistently, listeners, was why should we, and I use this term loosely, waste money on all this digital stuff when we can buy, spend that money on more important things? Any thoughts around that, Eric? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, I think there's this kind of misconception in especially the, the kind of charity world, the nonprofit world of overhead costs and it's overly scrutinized, right? And I think it, it really kind of stems from that core belief or that core misconception. And I think it's, it's unfairly scrutinized to some extent. Um, I do believe that organizations that are charitable in nature should be held to a standard and should be assessed, um, especially because people are giving their own hard-earned money to these organizations in good faith. And, and you want to make sure that those investments are worthwhile and that you're supporting organizations that don't only have a good intention, but also are effective and able to come through on making an impact and not just, you know, taking donations and not actually doing a ton with them. I'd say that's pretty rare, although it does happen. Certainly there are organizations set up um, as a nonprofit that are, you know, not really um, making much of a difference, um, whether that's because they're just not effective or because they are basically formed as essentially kind of a shell company or a tax haven. That's a quite 
um, you know, that's a pretty rare thing, but it does happen. So I do believe that we need to have a, and there are organizations working on this um, around like, how can we make sure that philanthropy is effective um, and that it's something that people want to support out of the goodness of their hearts, but that there's actual metrics that are being met as well. And so I think it maybe stems from that broader conversation. Um, but I think that same question could be applied to any element of running an effective organization. Why should we invest in staff when that money could be better spent on direct relief? Why should we invest in an office when people could work from their houses? Um, you know, why should we even, you know, start this organization in the first place um, when we could just give money to other organizations that already exist, right? So I think it's about understanding that digital is not a waste of money if it's done well. It's an impact multiplier. It has the ability to move the entire organization forward if it's done effectively and with the right strategy and with the right oversight and with the right intention. So what I call a gearbox, Eric. If you've got the right engine, which is my metaphor for the heart, the power, the drive, add a gearbox to it, a good gearbox, and you can change gears and you can get so much more out of that engine and cover so much more ground. So I want to ask you one final question, Eric, but before I do so, by way of closing, I just would, I'd like to invite you to share with, uh, with the listeners um, your, your details, your contact details, how people can reach out, find out more about you, etc. Yeah, definitely. So the first place um, to go is to our website, and that's designedbycosmic.com. And there's a contact form on there that you can um, reach me on, or you can email me at eric, E-R-I-C, at designedbycosmic.com. We also have a LinkedIn page and a Twitter page that are more active social channels. Um, but really, connecting with us on the website is the best approach. We publish a lot of free insights on our site around a lot of these topics. Um, so if you are uh, a member of one of these organizations, um, I would definitely check it out. We write about these ideas and, and give some pretty practical advice and free resources that can be quite helpful for you to get started along this path if these perspectives um, resonate with you. So designedbycosmic.com is the place to go. Super, thank you. So the big question then, Eric, listeners, you know what I normally do at this this stage. I normally, well, the, the approach I'm going to have with Eric is a more open one. Sometimes I offer the elevator strategy, which basically pins the guest into giving an answer in 30 seconds. And I'm not going to do that in this instance, Eric, but I'm going to ask you, the game's changing. How will you master it? So I'm going to personally continue down this path of trying to strike the right balance between utilizing technology as a force for good in my personal, in my professional life rather, and then in my personal life, making sure that I'm using it in a skillful way and that I'm leaving space to do other things as well. I honestly think that my philosophy that served me well, that continues to serve me well, is a philosophy called Kaizen. Um, which is a Japanese term that essentially means continuous iteration. And that's the way that I look at my life. And I think that's a good philosophy to live by, that there's always an opportunity to improve and to learn and to approach life with a, a philosophy of curiosity. And if you can approach things that way, then there's always more things to do. There's always an opportunity to grow. And it's always an interesting journey. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. And the reason I've got, uh, the reason I laugh or smile is 
hearing that k-word kaizen something i studied when i was at university to a degree degree and listeners just to i mean um, eric offered one insight there i think the way i was taught it very parallel just different wording of yesterday's exceptional performances will barely suffice for today but be nowhere near good enough for tomorrow and as eric rightly says it's continuous improvement and on that note listeners All that remains for me to say now is remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts. Thanks very much for listening to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode. If you found it interesting and helpful, drop a line to Paul via paul at paul-low.com with any thoughts or questions you may have. He'd love to hear from you and he'd be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at www.paul-low.com. Remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts. 